I think we've already uh, demonstrated uh, the capacity of our two countries to work together on the global stage to lay a foundation for economic recovery. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson overlooking historic Bryant Park in central Manhattan. (laughs) You're not. You're in a windowless (laughs) studio. I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Wednesday, June 3rd. That was Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner speaking during his meeting this week with Chinese President Hu Jintao up at the top of the podcast there. On today's show, we're going to prove something that a lot of people already think is absolutely true. But we are going to do it with evidence, with actual numbers, and a live, living academic economist. All right. Here's what we're going to prove, or at least give a theory that this guy has that he thinks proves that people who work on Wall Street, wait for it, make too much money. They're overpaid. First, a Planet Money indicator. Today, it is $21,000. This is not lunch for a Wall Street (laughs) guy. For a Wall Street guy, although it could be. Um, This is actually goes from comes from Spain. It is the going rate. It's actually the lower end of the going rate for an organ, not not a Wurlitzer organ, a kidney, a lung, for sale online. Um, I think this is against the law in America, but apparently you can do this in Spain. Our intern Matthew Katz, welcome Matt, posted about it on our blog. The unemployment rate throughout the European Union hit a 10-year high this week. In Spain, they are seeing a rise in people advertising organs to sell to patients needing transplants. I'm actually not sure it's legal, but Spanish unemployment is up over 17%, and it's still climbing. People think it has several points to go. It's the highest in the European Union, and, you know, people start looking for ways to make money. All right. Speaking of money, uh, Laura, you and I both live in New York. And we both work for public radio. So we've both had the experience. You're at a party. <laughs> yep. You meet someone who works in finance. They're talking about their vacation. They're talking about their Hamptons estate. Their second and third estate. Their second and third. I had my, one of my buddies from high school call me the other day. He's like, I'm meeting all these parents from my kid's school. Who are these people who have these massive townhouses in the village? Who are these people who have so much money? Yeah. I know. I hate that. It is always tough. You're always like, it's why them? Like, I'm smart enough. I could have gone to Wharton and, you know, I could be doing derivatives of derivatives. Exactly. For sure. Right. So we've all had this feeling, I'm sure. Listeners have had this feeling. And, you know, it's this gut feeling. I think it's it's alongside America's sort of free market uh, philosophy or to, to the extent that it has one. There's also this feeling of fairness and this isn't fair. Now, when you start learning economics, you learn the theory that, well, no, in a, in a uh, functioning market, prices find their right place. And, and it's not – you don't think of it in terms of fairness, but you think of efficiency and productivity. And no, th- you just have to trust the market. This is right. Someone on Wall Street should make $120 million hmm. and you should make whatever it is Less. public radio people make. So um, – we talked to, or I talked to, an economist named Ariel Reshef. He's an economics professor at the University of Virginia. And he said to me, you didn't take enough economics, if that's what you think, that actually uh, the case where the price is exactly right is a special case and does not apply to Wall Street. So they wrote this He wrote this paper with an NYU professor named Thomas Philippon uh, studying how Wall Street and financial professionals have been paid over the last century. It's a fascinating paper that we'll post on the blog. There's a lot of Greek formulas and stuff, but you can 
at least read through it enough to understand. And Reshef says one way to figure this out is, is you look at people who did something else, some other job, maybe they were engineers or whatever, and then they went to Wall Street and right away made more money. And, and how much more money is, is an important part of the question. Suppose that in 1998, you were in journalism in 1999. I observe you once again. Now you're in finance. Now you're earning twice as much. I would argue that that extra money is not because you became all of a sudden smarter. It's because you joined, quote unquote, a racket, a very, a very lucrative racket. Um, so, so, but isn't it just natural that some professions make more money? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think through. So, if I became a doctor. The reason I would make more money, at least one of the reasons, is I, to go from who I am now to a doctor, I'd need to get you know, many years of schooling, and I'd have to acquire a whole host of skills, and I'd be tested in a variety of ways. So, so it, it makes sense that I would make more money. But so, you want to, so first of all, you need to clear, clear out of this calculation the effect of time. So, what, so this calculation is going, to, is going to take into account only people. I'm only going to take into account observations on people in two consecutive years. And therefore, I take, I'm, I'm saying... So you're avoiding people who went for three years and got an MBA or got a absolutely. PhD in structured finance? Or, absolutely. Those are, those are not switchers for me. So, uh, but, but I have another argument, which is one of the things I think of at, at working at NPR is part of my compensation is the money I make. And, and part of the compensation is I have a really fascinating, really fun, exciting job. Uh, it tra- I get to travel around the world. I get to do a lot of things that I would probably pay money to do. And so if I added all of that up, maybe I do make twice or three times what my salary is in some fundamental way. Okay. Uh, so first of all, uh, this, is, this is probably true. And you, need to, and you would like to take into account all those, uh, all those uh, 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 what we call in economics, uh, compensating differentials. If your job is really, is really boring, then you need to be compensated for that, right? And Right. If someone said, you have to leave NPR and sit in front of a computer and look at bond prices all day and do the exact same trade day after day after day, boy, you'd have to pay me a lot more than twice my salary for me to switch jobs. <laughs> okay. So, so this is probably true. But the question is, after you measure... Uh, these, this, this, ex, this extra wage, what I call the finance premium in a particular year for a particular set of people. And then I observe what's happening to that premium over time. So I'm not saying that there aren't compensating differentials. Uh, I, I graduated uh, NYU with a PhD in economics and you, I, it's not, it's not beyond, uh, beyond my wildest uh, imagination to work on, on Wall Street. And I decided not to. And, and I, you probably could have made Maybe millions more than you make now, possibly. <laughs> Certainly hundreds of thousands more. Well, probably, maybe a few hundred thousand more. But, um, but the point is I want to see how that extra, uh, that extra bonus from working into finance evolves over time. So if you, if you see that that thing has, has increased and increased tremendously over the last 15 years, then you're starting to think, well, it's not just compensating differential. Something has changed. So it's a, it, you, will, you will have to do a very, very uh, good job in trying to convince me that, that working on, on Wall Street has become more painful over time. In fact, if anything, it became more interesting over time. All right. So the idea here is that Wall Street became sort of this intellectual 
playground, I guess, over the last few decades where they invented all these new fun products like the derivatives and the CDOs and the CDSs and the... Right. I mean, so so what he's saying is, if if I feel like, hey, if if you want me to work on Wall Street, you got to pay me a lot more because it's boring. I might not say that as much as Wall Street gets more interesting. Okay. As as as, as uh, so so, the extra I might demand the what he calls this compensating differential should shrink over time. But instead, it's doing the opposite. It's growing. The the bonus you get, you know, the the extra you get for switching from any other career to to finance has been growing dramatically over the last 10, 20 years. So basically, I should be going to Wall Street. Obviously. Yeah. 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 He says to understand the ideas that he's trying to get across, you have to understand that what Wall Street people get is not what economists call a wage. It's what economists call a rent. Mm-hmm. A rent typically meaning the rent that you would pay for an apartment. But I don't think that's the kind of rent you mean. They're not renting their cubes. Right, exactly. So the way an economist says rent um, is is not how the rest of us say rent. I think we keep discovering that there are lots of words that economists use very differently from the rest of us. Um, so, so if there is some situation which allows you to make more money than some fully competitive market would allow you to make, that extra money you get is a rent. Huh. So I immediately think of Time Warner Cable. Okay. They have a monopoly over my area of Brooklyn. Do they? Yep. Yep. And so they're able to charge more than they would charge if there was competing cable companies competing for my business. Now, we don't know exactly what those competing cable companies would, would charge, but let's say it was 10 or $20 less. Then, so Time Warner gets the market rate, whatever that would be, plus- The rent. The rent that they get because they have this monopoly power. But Wall Street is not a monopoly, and you see it all the time in businesses where somebody can come in and hire new people and pay them less money and charge the customers less. You could do this with an investment bank. You could set up a new investment bank and charge lower fees and pay your people less money, and then people will come and run to you, right? Doesn't the market still come up with the right amount somehow? Reshef says no. You know, other people would say yes, but Reshef says no, that's not right because uh, it, it Banking and finance is not a monopoly, but it's pretty close to an oligopoly, which in his view, it's not that different. So so what he says is what you just described. If that were true, if it were true that just about anybody who came up with a new idea could start an investment bank and say, hey, I'm going to pay my people less and be cheaper and more competitive, then yes, the market would find the right price. But he says that's not right because of something called barrier to entry. If I want to, to open an investment bank, that's actually not so easy. There are a lot of barriers to entry into, into this business of finance. It's not so easy. There are, there are people uh, that open hedge funds. This is true, but hedge funds are inherently small operations. Some of them grew bigger. This is true, but inherently they're small. They, they're often a guy in his living room with a computer in a Bloomberg terminal, um, and then he hires his cousin or his friend from his trading desk who just got laid off. Um, yeah, I was almost in that, uh, in that situation in terms of being hired. So, so yeah. Um, and, and so there are low, low, low barriers to entry there, but there, there are actually very high barriers to entry into finance. It's not, it's not a coincidence that uh, um, uh, finance people hire you know, the best and brightest of, of you know, the top Ivy League schools and the top schools in the U.S. because they can. And, and they, th- that means that people that are not coming from that, from that cohort actually don't have access 
So, um, so that's one thing. So when you have barriers of entry, there is, there's, uh, that's the first sign that you know, there might be an inefficient uh, outcome. And, and so let's, let's, let's pick a job that is properly – that is an efficient job. Um, I was a freelance writer, okay. and um, I was hawking my wares. There's very low barrier to entry. Pretty much anyone can say they're a freelance writer and call up magazines and try and offer their services. Um, the, the magazines and newspapers I wrote for wanted to pay me as little as possible. I wanted them to pay me as much as possible. And basically, we both had um, competition. I had, there were other freelance writers who were willing to do the job I was willing to do. And there were other magazines who were willing to hire me. And, and what I noticed is as I did more work, as I got better at the job, I would make more money because I was... Um, I was valued more highly by those magazines. Now, of course, those magazines could still say, no, we're only going to pay you 10 cents a word instead of $1.50 a word. But I had the power to walk away. I could say, I'm only going to work for $5 a word. And they could say, well, it's not worth it to us. And they could walk away. And, and, and so it's, it's reasonable at that point to say, I was paid the equilibrium, as economists say, but basically a market-based fair amount. Um, so that's that's probably a good example of a market that actually operates really well. But that can happen when the product that you that you manufacture or you produce is tangible. You produce an article. I know what that is. Uh, maybe some people pay you by the word. Maybe there's a there's some kind of way to evaluate the quality of each word. Um, you know the pleasure that people uh, that people get from from reading uh, uh, or 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 the information that they get from what you read. So over time, you build yourself a, a reputation uh, that actually signals that, hey, what I write actually is worth something, and, and, you, get, and you get paid accordingly. So that's, but the product, the bottom line here is that the product is very, very simple. Right. So, so we have two things. We have an open competitive market. It's very easy for me, for other people to compete with me. So that pushes my bo- bottom line down. And it's, at least it used to be, relatively easy to, for there to be more magazines and newspapers. This is true. Yeah, yeah. So we have open competition, and we have a clear, understandable product. This is this is this is exactly right. And and another one of the things that differentiates finance from 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 that situation is that the products are not clear. It's not entirely clear uh, what is the product that people are getting, and moreover, the products are so complicated that most people don't really understand what they're buying. When they buy a stock, they very, very rarely understand the connection between, um, between the economic value of the firm, what, it's prospect- what are its prospective uh, 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 earnings. Uh, there are all kinds of projections into the future. Most people don't understand how those things are done. That's, that's a situation in which, not necessarily, but uh, evidently, inefficient outcomes can emerge. When you have a product that is not entirely... Uh, well understood, and uh, people are just going to say, "Well, this is an amazing product." How do you know? Well, I just told you it's an amazing product. Trust me. Ooh, famous last words. Trust me. Right. So, so Reshef is saying. I mean, I, I don't know if he would approve of these words, and he's traveling in Europe, so I wasn't able to reach him. But I, I, I here's how I summarize it, and um, his words. I'm not saying I agree or disagree. I'm just saying how I summarize it is. Wall Street is not doing what I did as a freelance writer. They're not in a wildly open competitive marketplace saying, here's what we want to do. 
how much do you want to pay and let's come to an agreement. What Wall Street is doing is saying there's only so many people who know how to do this and you don't even understand what we're selling, so we're going to hoodwink you and charge you more for it. The mystery is part of the game. The mystery gives them an extra cushion, an extra rent. Okay. So let's say we have this market that's hard to get into and a product that is hard to measure. But did these guys have any sense of why it happened like this, that the pay for these people just got so out of control? Reshef and Philippon say that if you look at wages and finance compared to comparable professions that the same sorts of people might do, it's very interesting. They said it's U-shaped. At the beginning of the 20th century, right up to 1929, Wall Street and finance folks are paid way more than other people with a similar education and whatever background. And then for most of the 20th century, they're actually paid a lot less, not less than the rest of, obviously Wall Street has always been well paid, but a lot, the, the extra premium is much smaller than it was before less than the in crash. Spooky days. Right. Yeah. And then in the 80s, it starts picking up again. It actually drops a bit in the late 80s. And then since the early 90s, it just hurdles upward. So he said that they were looking for something else. He calls this a U-shaped pattern, you know, way high, low, then way high. So they were just looking for anything that could explain it, anything else that was U-shaped. And they only found one thing that seemed to explain it perfectly, and, and that's deregulation. We believe, and we try to argue in our paper or more scientifically, that the deregulation is what's, uh, is what's behind everything. So more than the actual wages themselves uh, is, is the mechanism that allows them to actually earn that much. This mechanism had to do with very, very little regulation of the product that they sold. They've sold very, very complicated products uh, that they did not, a lot of people on Wall Street did not understand, and I have anecdotal evidence about that, um, which was a huge, on colossal scale, misallocation of capital. People paid money into investments that went bad. And it's the way Wall Street compensation worked, and we're doing a lot on this um, at Planet Money, the way Wall Street compensation worked is you had a direct incentive if you worked at, if you wanted a big bonus, to make it very hard to figure out how much risk you were taking on or how much risk was in the products you were selling. You were selling very risky products, but making them look like very safe products. And, um, and you were moving them out the door as quickly as possible so that you could get more fees, more bonuses. And, and the fact that you got paid every year based on what you sold that year even if what you were selling were time bombs set to go off in five years or Absolutely. six years. So the, see, the, the whole incentive structure was very wrong. If, they, if, if, the, if the sector was, more, was better regulated and, and real long-term gains were linked to, uh, to performance measures today, they, would not have been, they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been able to register the revenues that they registered, and they wouldn't be able to pay the, the high wages that they, that they paid. So we're going to be talking about a lot of these issues on our upcoming partnership programs with This American Life. Actually, this this weekend, uh, David Kessenbaum and Alex Bloomberg have an um, awesome story about credit rating agencies and the incentives at play there. And our own Hannah Jaffe-Walt has a story about the regulators and, and ways in which the regulators messed up. So tune in Check to it out. The Watchmen on 
This American Life this weekend. Okay. A Planet Money co-production. All right, folks. We've spent this entire show talking about all these people who work in finance and how they made too much money and how they played a part in this crisis. And now it's time to hear from one of them. This call came in to our apology line. You may remember we set up a special phone line just for people to call in and say they were sorry for whatever role they had played in wrecking the economy. But as you're going to hear, this particular call doesn't really add up to anything even resembling a mea culpa. Hi, this is Jung Ho Lee, and uh, it's actually all my fault. I uh, used to work for a boutique firm that used to buy uh, mortgages, both of Altay and Subprime, and second lien mortgages, and we used to create a mortgage-backed security product. So you can say that I've basically created the entire mess. Now, am I apologetic for this? Not really. And uh, there are actually two reasons for this. The first being the fact that uh, investors, you and I and everybody else, were asking for returns on money in their 401ks and uh, IRAs of something like 8% over inflation, which would turn out to be 12 to 15%. So guys like me would go to work and we would create some kind of what looked to be riskless product that could actually get you those kinds of returns. And uh, not once during the entire boom did people actually say, hey, you know, this is unsustainable or this is unrealistic by actually pulling money out of their 401ks, but you continue to funnel money into them, so we continue to create product. So, you know, unless you pull money out, that just gives Wall Street the idea that you like the idea and we will continue to create the product until the world comes crashing down. And the second issue is the fact that everyone believed the uh, everyone believed that everyone else was doing their homework. You know, you go back to well, the credit agencies were running their risk pro- profile, and my investment manager was reading all the docs when. In point of fact, Wall Street is basically an entire buyer beware situation, and you have absolutely no real, you know, uh, security unless you actually read all the documents for yourself and you understand them. Now, I understand how difficult the CDO product is to understand, and CDS, CDO squared product, you know, and credit default swaps. So, you know, if you don't understand and you know, you can't get a straight answer. My suggestion is to basically not have invested in it in the first place. I mean, yes, you might not be making the same amount of money as the guy down the block who's your neighbor, but, you know, when things blow up, at least you'll still have your savings and you will, well, he'll be working for the next 10 plus years over after you. And so, uh, you know, to have a big part in creating some of the mess? Absolutely. Am I apologetic? Not so much. All right. Well, I, you got to love how straightforward that guy is. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Jung Ho Lee. Okay. You two can call in and apologize or non-apologize for your part in the financial crisis. I'll give you the number. 202-371-1775. And I'll just say that once more. 202-371-1775. Start dialing, America. 
there's still time to get it all off your conscience. And when you're done dialing, think about the blog, the Planet Money blog. I posted photos today. Thank you very much, listeners, from our Half Built America series. I'll bet a bunch of you live near a place like you're going to see in this gallery. It's on npr.org slash money. And never mind that giant photo of a kidney also on the blog. It's from the intern. Yeah, he posted it. Not his kidney, a Creative Commons kidney out of Flickr. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.